Hello, I'm Draven Makova, and this is my podcast, Lessons from History. But for a shorter reference, let's just call it LFH. Many things have happened that directed society and mankind to reach this point in history where we are now. Some were good things, and some not so good. With this podcast, I hope to highlight different aspects of humanity, not to judge what was done, but from my hindsight, what might have been changed by the acts of one person, a culture, or a race, or a nation. This podcast is about what happened and what could have been, and it's lessons from history. To set the moment for this episode of LFH, I want to say this is the beginning of uh, November in the year 2020. The world's always changing, and with recent events in the past months like COVID-19 pandemic and the election of 2020 in the United States, I decided to move up a topic that I have been reviewing for a future episode and instead produce this episode of LFH about the life and times of Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune. I live in the Central Florida area, also known as the Orlando area, or some may know it as the Big Mouse Ears, a.k.a. Disney World. Add to this information that Mary McLeod Bethune lived in Central Florida, too, but deduct from the equation that she passed away in 1955, long before me and probably you, too. But then add to the equation my mention of uh, the recent social events, and maybe you have figured out why Dr. Bethune is the subject of this first ever Lessons from History. Or maybe you're asking yourself, Mary who? Well, that's why I'm here. So let me start with some personal details that recently happened. I went to New Smyrna Beach, which is located on the east coast of Central Florida region. As I alluded to a moment ago, social events have been going on and COVID-19 has been raging in the United States for months. And I decided to get out of the house and look for something that would be fun to do that would include uh, social distancing and, you know, being safe. The radio that morning, the weather predicted a rainy day, except for a couple of hours early in the morning. So I took the chance and headed out to the beach. As things usually happen, there were a lot of cars around some of the larger resorts, and I quickly passed them up. My thought was being that social distancing probably was not happening there. Instead, I drove down the highway, which runs parallel to the Atlantic Ocean, until I spotted a parking area that was populated with like five cars. To me, a few cars would likely equal a few people, and as it all played out, there were very few people on the beach in that location. Across the street, there was a place outside where you could get a quick shower, you know, go to the restroom, that type of thing. And at some point during the day, I walked over to use the facilities and spotted a large sign with the history of the beach park, how it got its name. I didn't even know it had a name. The sign shared a glimpse of the life and the story of an African-American lady Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune. Now, I had heard her name on the radio and television from time to time, always recognizing her as the founder of a college in Daytona Beach, Florida. But I had never studied up on her and what she had done other than being the founder of that college. On my cell, I did a quick Google on her name and history. The results were more than I could possibly review while at the beach. It was hot, and I could barely read my mobile screen. So I made note of her name and went about my day enjoying the sun and the water and some seafood later in the evening. But over the next couple days, I googled for answers and anything that correlated with the sign at the beach. What started as a simple search developed into a deep interest in my collection of information about Dr. Bethune's life and accomplishments 
Quickly, I learned that Mary McLeod Bethune was the daughter of slaves in the United States during the Civil War. Actually, before the Civil War and during the Civil War. She became an important black educator for civil rights and women's rights. And later in life, she represented black women and their rights in the United States government. More on that in a couple minutes. I want to mention that any reference related to Negro, colored, blacks, people of color, or African American is made in relation to and representative of the time it was used, a.k.a. the Life and Times comment earlier. I will try to ensure that the year or period of time is mentioned so I can go forward in reference to word usage. But in any case, let me be clear that as a white man, my efforts today are of nothing but respect and care for the memory of Dr. Bethune and what she accomplished in her life. We begin. Mary McLeod was born July the 10th, 1875, the 15th of 17 children to Samuel and Patsy McLeod, who were slaves during the American Civil War. In the United States, slavery was present prior to the Civil War, with slaves working for plantation owners and other white business owners, white being a reference to skin color. It prevailed in the years after the war, too. It just looked different. I will not try to explain the Civil War and its causes in this podcast. There were many. For this episode of LFH, keep in mind that the ownership of another human being was prevalent in many nations around the world. And still is. During the Civil War, there were white landowners fighting their own brothers who did not agree with their ownership of slaves. There were people in different states fighting their own neighbors over slave ownership, and there were people of color fighting in the war to gain their own release from slavery. It was a convoluted time in history. Thousands of lives were lost over so many differences. Yet the Northern Union Army and government prevailed, and slaves gained a form of freedom. This Emancipation Proclamation from Slavery was presented and declared law of the land by then-President Abraham Lincoln a white man. He actually made this proclamation twice. The first was on September the 22nd, 1862, when he announced that if the southern states did not cease their rebellion by January the 1st, the following year, it would become law. January the 1st, 1863, the proclamation would go into effect. The states did not follow his direction, and the final Emancipation Proclamation did become effective January the 1st, 1863. But in spite of this, years would pass before all slaves would really learn of the proclamation, partly because blacks, at least most blacks, could not read. Some were still living as slaves, serving the families and businesses that they had always known. I use the word freed as only a shell of the word because freed did not mean freedom yet. You see, being freed from the physical bondage was not freedom to participate as a United States citizen. In fact, as the McLeod family gained their freedom and own land of their own, their children of color were not allowed the opportunity to attend school and receive an education like white children. With the McLeod family in Maysville, South Carolina, there was no school for their children to attend until Emma Wilson, an African teacher and missionary, founded the Trinity Presbyterian Mission School in 1882. Three years later, Mary became the first member of her family to attend the school. Records show that Mary walked five miles to attend the school each day and five more to get back home. And I can imagine there were 
many frightful days of travel for a child of color in the years following the war. But her determination and stick to impressed Wilson, who selected Mary as the recipient of a scholarship to attend Scotia Seminary for Black Women in North Carolina. Graduating from that seminary in 1884, Wilson then paid for Mary to attend Dwight Moody's Institute for Home and Foreign Missions in Chicago, Illinois. During her time at this organization for higher education, Mary dreamt of becoming a missionary in Africa. But like many obstacles she faced, Mary was told that there were no missionary jobs in Africa for blacks from America. Again, I can imagine this had to be demoralizing for Mary and her plans. But records reveal that she quickly resolved her conflicted heart and would say later that Africans in America needed Christ in school just as much as Negroes in Africa. My life work lay not in Africa, but in my country. While teaching in South Carolina, she met and married John Albertus Bethune, and in short order they moved to Palatka, Florida. Their son Albert was born in 1899, and Mary worked at a Presbyterian church. She also sold insurance on the side to help with family finances, but it's not known if this caused strife in the family or there were financial issues to cause other strife, but something happened. And I've never read any records of exactly what it was, but marital problems developed, which led to the Bethune marriage ending in 1904. It was during this time, following the breakup of their marriage, that Mary opened the Daytona Beach Literary and Industrial School for Training Negro Girls. Several records mention that the school was opened in order to help others and for her own financial needs. It had to be very hard for a single black mother in America. I can only imagine what she went through, but in reality I have only conjecture and history books to base my understanding. But with her personal educational experience, along with her innate desire to succeed, it is easy to say that there would be nothing that would stop her. But again, fear and concern must have accompanied her through her decisions and things she did for the school. But changing America was part of Mary McLeod Bethune's life agenda. The school opened with only five black students, all girls, and Mary's son. While growing the school in Daytona, she did most everything from keeping the school clean, teaching, administrative duties, to the handling of the money. She would do most anything to keep the school afloat and get the children educated. When funds were a challenge, she searched garbage dumps for items that the school could use or refurbish to be used like furniture, wood products, plastic products. Her determination would later be captivating, for this was obvious in the loyalty of her staff as she secured as a school grew and her attention was directed to other aspects of business and serving others. Whether baking pies or churning ice cream that was sold to local construction workers during their meal breaks, Mary never stopped looking for ways to gain funds for her work. She worked to know people in the community, black and white as she befriended business leaders and community influencers, most who were white. She received their loyal personal and financial support. Thomas White of White Sewing Machines and the head of Coca-Cola at the time were two of her benefactors. Like I mentioned before, the small school opened with only five young female students, but in two years had grown to include 250 female students. Due to her tenacity provide, the staff was committed to her and the school gained in popularity merging with the all-male Cookman Institute in 1923, and the new school entity was recognized at the Bethune-Cookman College, and it's that way now. 
Upon my last check of the college website, 3,620 undergraduate students are currently enrolled. Mary served as the school's president until 1942, and since that time, the school has graduated over 13,200 students. For me, this is quite an accomplishment for a school that started with a handful of students. But developing the school was only part of the Bethune's life story. Even after starting the school, Mary still had the drive and desire to do missionary work and sought out ways to be a missionary to people in need. As she moved around the southeastern United States, Mary found many people just like herself who needed some type of support or maybe a bolster and self-confidence to reach their true potential. One such type of person, or in this case people, were found in the backwoods of Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida. The people who she could minister to were working in the industry of harvesting trees for turpentine. I say worked, but this employment was conducted on the cheap, so to speak. And for the most part, ex-slaves and or families of them and or people of color who worked in situations that similar to the slavery earlier generations had known. The living conditions in the turpentine camps, as they were called, was deplorable and workers received a deplorable wage for their slave-like work. I mentioned before that life after the Civil War was just a different form of slavery, and the work of turpentine workers is an example of this. In the camps, there was a manager, and then there was a foreman. It was common for workers to be maintained by the force of guns, beatings, and other brute violence. Stiff-armed in society, beat down, and taught to not object was the way of life for these workers. A camp commissary would deduct from a worker's pay, thereby noting the debt of each. Any worker who had a debt and left the camp would be hunted down and brought back to pay off his debt. Witnesses within the worker ranks noted in interviews recorded in the 1930s that the foreman ranked ahead of God to the workers. He was not lenient or caring for workers. He gave no reprieve for mistakes or insubordinate remarks, but the foreman was known to reward extra hours of work with alcohol, which seemed like a treat to the workers but in essence served as a form of control, a sort of economic pinnage. To his face, the workers called the foreman captain, but went away from him, the workers referred to him as the man. From my research, I found the turpentine worker was nothing more than a low-paid slave. Each camp was made up of 50 to 200 men of color working to box the product from the trees or to streak the trees, marking them to be processed. Shanty homes were provided, but again, I will say that the living conditions were much like slavery in years gone by. In working with the turpentine workers, Mary had found an opportunity to be her missionary self. She would help in any way she could, but the most noticeable was she provided education for the children of the turpentine workers. A song I found that was written with the people like the turpentine workers in mind can be found in my references noted with this podcast. Other than her educational efforts, Mary also worked as an advocate for the betterment of women in African-American lives. In fact, she was known by many as the First Lady of the Struggle. With her success in education came accolades and recognition by civic and national leaders. Mary used her influence and contacts to advance her overall goal, to gain and grow civil rights for black Americans, and her ultimate goal, freedom and equal rights for all. In 1932, she supported President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his presidential campaign. With her great ability to communicate with anyone she met, Mary was recognized by the president as an exceptional worker 
and she was invited to be a member of his unofficial black cabinet. In this new role, she had direct access to advise the president on the concerns of black people, and in return, he trusted her to convey his messages and what he was working to achieve for black citizens. In this position, she served the cause of African Americans in many ways. In 1935, Mary founded the National Council of Negro Women in New York. During the same period of time, President Roosevelt appointed her as the director of the Division of Negro Affairs of the National Youth Administration. She held that position from 1936 through 1943 and had great influence that proved a benefit in the education of the nation's black youth. The president considered Mary his foremost advisor in his unofficial black cabinet and consulted with her often on minority affairs and interracial relations. I'm including in my transcripts of this episode a link to a collection of letters from Mary and President Roosevelt. Benefits. First, there was the obvious. The message of black Americans was being shared with the president who cared and wanted to make a difference. Another major value Mary provided was being a leader in the black civil rights movement, preparing the way for other voices such as Dr. Martin Luther King. But when we consider history, it is easy to understand that the sacrifice of each black person played a role in advancing the rights of future black people. And with this understanding, it is easy to recognize how people of color changed our nation and continue to have an impact on the rights of future generations. I cannot end today's episode without saying that there was an admiration, or maybe it was an adoration, or a respect and care that this is documented between Mary and the President's wife, Eleanor Roosevelt. Mary received many awards and credits over her lifetime, so many that there were times when she received criticism from blacks and whites. There were death threats from extremist groups like the Ku Klux Klan and the then-prominent Senator Joseph McCarthy, who was on the lookout for extremist and or communist groups. And of course, black Americans fell under the description of concerning groups and Senator McCarthy's watchful eye. In her daily newspaper column, Mrs. Roosevelt, in an effort to refute claims that Mary was in league with the communists, wrote in her newspaper once, If she did belong to any communist organization, I am sure with her keen mind she soon discovered something wrong and was not a member for long. If she went to them to speak, she undoubtedly did them good. I implore you to read more about the friendship between Mary Bethune and Eleanor Roosevelt. The two had the interest to better the lives of ladies, black and white. Throughout their friendship, there are displays of caring and affection. In a 1939 national meeting in Birmingham, Alabama, Eleanor requested that she be seated next to Mary in spite of the segregation laws in that state, which did not allow blacks the right to sit with whites. There were special sections noted for blacks. Another example of their respect for one another took place at a dinner held at the Bethune-Cookman College. While giving a speech, Mary's voice became rasping, crackly, and hoarse. Eleanor stood up, went to Mary, poured her a glass of water. Dr. Mary Bethune and Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt had a special bond and relationship, and they were committed to the betterment of life for black citizens and all women. As it been stated through the years, Mary's goals were to gain freedom and rights for her race. But in the process, she advocated for women's rights and an even larger goal of bringing blacks and whites together. She wanted to inspire individuals to contribute to society no matter their race, skin color, or gender. In referring to Mary and the organization she helped develop, 
Eleanor Roosevelt predicted Mary's organizations, quote, will help the brotherhood of man in the world, close quote. With some terrible occurrences that have taken place in America in the past months prior to this recording, we have a more global resurgence in the effort to find equal rights for all. But we should never lose sight that though Mary was one of millions who had played a role in achieving more for people of color and humanity, I believe the life of Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune had a special charm and was one of millions of lessons from history that we can benefit from. And that's it for this episode of Lessons from History. I'm Draven McCova. Do good things out there. And I'm out of here.